Open your Bibles to Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11. Well, there are many churches a person could choose from today in Los Angeles, in Simi Valley, and even down our street. I want you to think about as people gather in churches around America, around the world, as we gather here to worship God, does it really matter what our view is on things like gender? or marriage, or leadership in a local church. Let me give you a couple of examples. Does it matter? For instance, there's a denomination called United Methodist Church. So I'm just going to state facts. That denomination voted to include non-binary as a third gender category for the church. So that denomination now teaches gender is determined by your own personal opinions, not by your biology, not how God made you. Another one, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, so it's a certain denomination of Lutherans, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, in September of 2021, became the first mainline Protestant denomination to install a bishop who identified as transgender. So that denomination believes that a biological male can decide that he is a female and they can put him in leadership. Does it matter? Does it matter if pastors are females instead of 1 Timothy 2 says they are to be males? In May of 2021, Saddleback Church under Pastor Rick Warren ordained three women pastors. Does that matter? All the way back to October of 1956, it's a while ago, the Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA Church, it's a certain denomination, again, of Presbyterian, PCUSA Church ordained Margaret Towner as their first woman pastor. So as we think about all that, does that matter? As we come together as a church, I mean, here we are gathered, does does all that really matter And the answer is yes, but why? Why does it matter? Because it matters to God. In fact, God says it matters in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. Last year, we went through 1 Corinthians 1 through chapter 10. Then we took a break in December for Christmas. And now we're back in chapter 11. And in chapter 11 through chapter 14, God gives instructions for the local church on how they are to worship when they gather in a setting like this. So those four chapters deal with worship matters in the local church. So over the next eight, ten weeks, that's going to be our theme, worship matters in the local church. Or you could say it like this, worship matters in the local church. I didn't come up with that. I found that online, by the way. It's a book called that. My my actual title, though, this morning is God's Order of Authority Matters in Worship. Because 1 Corinthians 11, 2, remember chapter breaks are not inspired. 
chapter 11, 2 through 16, verse 2 through 16, we find that what matters to God when we gather as a church, one of the things that matters is that we honor his order of authority. And so my title of my sermon this morning is God's Order of Authority Matters in Worship, particularly when the local church gathers to worship. Now, no pastor decides he's going to preach on 1 Corinthians 11. You only preach on this text if you're preaching expositionally, verse by verse. And no pastor wants to preach this text necessarily because it's a very difficult verse and or chapter. This past week, I almost drowned studying this, theologically drowned studying this text. I've actually had two months to study it, so we've been off for a while. This Seems like a culturally antiquated passage for the 21st century church, and we're talking about head coverings. But also, I think this is probably the most relevant passage for the 21st century church. In this passage, we talk about gender, we talk about authority, we talk about male and female roles in marriage, and so that's very relevant to us today. As we go into chapter 11 here, I want to give you the out, my outline for what, I, uh, what I'm going to preach on, which I think will help us as we navigate through this text of Scripture. I think the big idea of this passage of verse 2 through 16 is that since God is the authority, his order of authority must matter to his church. Since God is the authority, he is God, we are not God, he is the authority, Therefore, his order of authority must matter to his church. And then we're going to see three ways in which the church is to gather under the authority of God. First, each church must unite as one under the authority of God's word. So you're going to see that in verse 2. And so in a moment, we'll read through this text. So notice that in verse 2. And then, and then second, each church must function under God's order of authority in our distinct gender roles. In fact, look down in verse 3. I just want you to notice that this is about authority. Verse 3, he uses the word head there. The head of Christ is God. That's a word that means authority. Verses 3 through 7, the word head is used 12 times. Five times the word head is used. It's speaking not of my physical noggin, but as someone who's in charge and authority. In fact, if you look in verses 7 through 9, you'll see that God's authority is demonstrated because he's a, the creator. He created. In verse 10, you can see the word authority. And so we're going to look at God and his order of authority. And then our last point is, be, is that each local church must value each person, male and female, as equals personally made in the image of God and spiritually as co-heirs of the grace of Jesus Christ. And you can see that in verses 11 and 12. So that's my outline this morning. And as we go through these, this text, hopefully you can see it. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of questions. Hopefully we can answer most of those today. This will be a two-part sermon, so we'll also go into more detail next week. Would you stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 11? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses... I think I can take this down. Verses 9 through 16. 
Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is a disgrace for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. There's God's authority. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to understand this text. And this, more than ever, Lord, is a prayer that we need this morning. Because there are so many things in this text that can be confusing. But we want to know your truth. We want to obey your word. Give us grace to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Are you excited about this text? Okay, good. Well, be patient. It's going to take us two weeks to get through this. Since God is the authority, his order of authority must matter to his church. And so first of all, we as a church are commanded to unite as one under the authority of God's word. Notice verse number two. Paul starts off by speaking to the church, praising them. Now I commend you. Notice that word you, that's a plural. And that word you, the plural you, is speaking of this local church. If you were to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, you would see that this local church is in a town called, a city called Corinth. And it's important for us to recognize that, that this is a local church, because these are instructions for this local church in this community, in the culture in which they are living. And God wants them to personalize this. And God wants us to look at a text like this and for us to personalize it and consider what does that look like in 21st century America in a church like ours. And Paul praised them in verse 2 because they remembered him, because they maintained the traditions. He says in verse 2, even as I delivered them to you. 
So this church remembered Paul and what he taught when he was their pastor. Paul at one time was their pastor, and he was their apostolic delivery man. You know, you have an Amazon person that might come and deliver your package. Well, Paul delivered God's word. And when someone delivers a package to you, they get it from somewhere else, and they're just the messenger, right? And that was Paul. He was just the messenger. He was taking what God had given to him through Christ, and he passed it on to the church. And what did he deliver to them? Notice verse number two. It was the traditions. Now, we see that, and we go, that word makes me nervous. Traditions? Well, the word tradition is the idea of just passing something on. We pass on traditions all the time. You know, maybe as a parent, you taught your kids to say thank you after a meal. That's a tradition. There's nowhere in the Bible where it commands us to, you know, say thank you after a meal. Or maybe you passed on the tradition of, of eating turkey at Thanksgiving. So, traditions are things we just pass on. So what did Paul pass on? Well, it was God's word. It was the teachings of God's word. In fact, notice this is maybe a helpful chap, uh, verse for you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, so then, brothers, this is Paul writing, stand firm and hold to the traditions. Well, what are those traditions? That you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so Paul passed on the teachings of God's word to them. The foundation for a church and worship is God's word. The fountain of all of our worship flows out of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, as you think about those churches that I mentioned at the very beginning that adopted those views on on gender and on marriage, let me ask this question. Where did that all start? Because there was a time those denominations did not believe that. Where did all that begin? Well, historically, theologically, it starts and it started with them with a low view of Scripture. At some point, they said, yes, we we believe God's word is true, but it's not all true. We believe God's word is mostly true, but these things are wrong, and they stopped believing that Scripture is inerrant, it's inspired. They stopped believing that it's infallible. They thought, oh, there's some errors in there, and it's not really the authority over our, our life. Maybe culture has something to say to us. I want you to consider the PCUSA church, the church I mentioned earlier. I should say denomination, not a church denomination, that has churches. In the 1920s, the PCUSA, that Presbyterian denomination, had a college we know as Princeton. Princeton held at that time, in the 1920s, that scripture is inerrant. In other words, it's without error, that it's true. It has authority over our lives. They had a professor there named Gresham Machen, and he warned the university and the church that if they gave up their belief in the authority of Scripture, it would destroy Christianity in their denomination, their churches, but also at Princeton. 1923, 100 years ago, Machen wrote a treatise titled, titled Christianity and Liberalism. Go online, you can read it, it's a PDF. And it called Princeton and the PCUSA denomination back to believe God's word is without error and authoritative over their university, denomination, and each life. And in response, in 1929, Princeton fired him. 
And this is where, this is the result. This is where they are today. I'm giving this as an example. This is on Princeton's website. Princeton has a gender plus sexuality resource center that states on their website that they affirm, uplift, and celebrate women. And we do that, right? But then there's femi, I don't know what that is, trans and queer people, and that actively resist sexism, size sexism, cis sexism. See, I don't even know what these words mean. Heteronormity, I, th- I think that's us. But you get the point? I mean, where are they today? They're completely far from God's word, right? And where did that start? And my, my point is, as we're talking about worship, as we talk about gathering as a church, like if, if we're the authority, if we get to decide what we believe and what we want to believe, then let's just close the church down and do whatever we want to do, right? Why are we even gathering? But if God's the authority, then his word is authoritative over us. It's authoritative over our worship. It's authoritative over what we believe. It's authoritative over our own lives. And so it's so important to remember that since God is our authority, each local church must unite as one under the authority of God's word, but also they must function under God's order of authority in distinct gender roles. Notice verse number three. But I want you to understand. So now Paul is going to say, here's a truth. Here's an important foundational truth for a local church. Verse three, here's the truth. That the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So verse three teaches that God the Father is the ultimate authority, and he has set up an order of authority, a chain of command, you could say it that way. Notice that word in verse three, head. That's a key word there. Head is a metaphor that pictures authority. The head is the ruling part of the body. The head provides leadership and direction. Right now, my head is telling my hands to move. My head tells my lungs to pull in air and push it out over my vocal cords, right? The head gives direction to the rest of the body. So the point is here, the head is the authority that provides leadership and direction to the body. And verse 3 teaches that God has established an order of authority. Sometimes that's called headship. So you have a headship, an order of authority. And and notice in verse 3, who is the head of Christ? The head of Christ is God. Or you could say it like this, God the Father is the head, the authority of Jesus Christ. So this is a reference to the Trinity and how the Trinity operates. So I think it's probably helpful for us just to kind of review what do we believe about God? What does the Bible teach about our triune God? It's important to understand that as we look at this text. First, remember that God is one. He's one being. We don't believe there are multiple gods. There aren't three gods. God is one, one being, one essence. In fact, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's three chapters over. Back, Go back a couple pages. 1 Corinthians 8. Notice verse number 6. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Paul says, he writes, Yet for us there is, how many gods? One God. And then he says, the Father... From whom, uh, all, um, from whom are all things and from whom we exist. So notice, notice the Father, and from the Father comes all things. And then notice one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so sec, go back to 1 Corinthians 11. So God is one, one being, but he eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Can you comprehend that as a human? Not completely. And if you could, you would be God, okay? And so we worship a God we don't completely understand, but we believe what he says is true about himself. And each person of the Godhead is his own distinct person. They are not the same persons. They are distinct, Father, Son, and Spirit. And they function in an order of authority with with different roles that complement one another. And then third, all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully God and are co-eternal, co-powerful, co-equal. They're co-equal. So the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in divinity. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. God the Spirit is not less God than God the Son. They're all equally God. They are all deserving of worship, equally deserving of worship. The Father doesn't deserve more worship than the Spirit. They all three deserve worship. One is not wiser. The Father is not wiser than the Son, nor is the Spirit more powerful or wiser than the the Son. And so the point is they're all equal in their attributes. And so all three of these facts about God are so important. God is one being. God is three persons functioning in an order of authority, fulfilling distinct roles, and all three are equal in divinity and worth and in power. Now take that knowledge and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Notice how God operates. The very end of the verse, the head of Christ is God. So there you see that speaks of the order of authority in the Godhead. The Father is leading. He's the leading authority in the Godhead. And the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Son obeyed the Father's will. He he redeemed his church by dying on the cross. Jesus said, I have come down from earth, not to do my own will, but the will of him, that's the Father, who sent me. John 6, 38. And the Father and the Son, they sent the Spirit. So notice this chain of command. Bible teaches all things are from the Father, through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that's who God is. And yet all of them, each one, they are completely equal. There's not one that's more important than the other. They all have this inner dependence upon each other and all have the same importance. Now I want you to think about that and ask the question, why is that important for our church? Why is that important for a local church like ours? Well, it's so essential for us who are married and so essential for us who are part of a local church because our church and our marriages should be a reflection of God and of how God operates and how really he runs heaven and earth. I want you to imagine a ballroom. Imagine a ballroom with men and women and they're in their tuxedos and then their gowns and they're around a, a ballroom floor, and there's um, people that are about to do the waltz. And I'm, and I'm thinking wholesome, okay? I'm thinking, like, they're modest, and there's the orchestrations going, and this is like, think of Little Women, okay? If you've seen that, the, 
16 movies out there of little women. But think about it. The music starts, and in the middle of the room, a man and a woman join together, and they glide across the floor, and their movements are perfectly in sync as they step side to side, and they slide here and move there, and they're in perfect sync with the music. And they dance almost as if, almost as if they are one, right? And if you're into that kind of thing, that can be a, a, very, a very beautiful thing to watch. And why is it beautiful? Well, I would argue it's beautiful because they are following an order of authority. Yes, they are one dancing together, but there's one who's leading and there's one who's following. And if you don't have that, you don't have beautiful dancing. But yet, is one more valuable than the other? Would we say the man's more valuable than the woman or the woman's more? No, we'd say they're equal in their value and in, as, as persons dancing on the floor. Now, take that illustration and think about how God works. God beautifully works as one being who is three persons that works together in distinct roles, yet they are all co-equal. And again, why is this important for the worship of our church? Well, it's because God works as a triune God. He is triune. He created the world as a triune God. He providentially oversees our world according to his triune work. He sent the Son, the Father sent the Son, the Savior died to redeem. The Spirit is the one who saves. So his redemption, his salvation is triune. God sovereignly carries out his will in, according to his triune work. So when we gather as a church, when, when we gather as people, some who are married, some who are not married, but we, as we gather as a church, we must reflect God in heaven. Our church must be one body, unified as one. Yet we operate under an order of authority, and there are different people in different positions in the church, but there's an order of authority. Yet we all value each other. No one is more important than the other person. And our marriages must be one flesh. A man and a woman must come together as one flesh. Yet they're distinct. He's man. She's a woman. And they have different roles. And yet, no one's more valuable than the other. Both are valuable as made in the image of God. Both are important in the kingdom of God. And so notice that in verse number three. You, you have God is the authority of Christ. And notice Christ is the authority over man. Look at verse three. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. So Christ is the head. He's the authority. He is the Lord over man, or you could say mankind. His role is to lead and to direct, to provide as Lord and Savior. And what's our role? Our role is to trust. Our role is to obey, to follow. And how did he lead? How did Jesus Christ lead? Well, he led through love. He led through giving up his own life. He led by serving. He led by providing salvation for us. You see, when we're talking about authority here, we're not talking about an authoritarianism. We're not talking about like Stalin or Hitler that's domineering and oppressive and abusive. This is an authority that is energized by love. This is an authority that serves. The father loves the son and he leads in that way. The son loves the church so he leads in that way. 
And as leaders, we are to love those that God has appointed us over, and we are to lead in that way. Love serves. So notice the next order of authority in verse number three. The head of a wife is her husband. Or you could say it another way. A husband is the authority over his wife. Now, that is definitely countercultural right there, huh? I mean, that is something that might get you kicked out of some churches and definitely out of some universities if you speak about that. But God has set up churches and marriages to operate under a loving, serving order of authority, which ultimately is to operate under the triune order of authority. Now, let me ask this question. If you were Satan, and you're going to come after God, and you're going to try to destroy God's work on earth, what are you going to kind of, what are you going to attack? What are you going to come after? You're going to come after God's order of authority, right? I mean, Satan hates God. He hates what God is doing. So he's going to attack God, the authority, and how God, God works, and that's through his order of authority. And so therefore, Satan, he's the one influencing this world. He's influencing Media, so that on TV you have fathers that look like a bunch of buffoons, and the other men look like sex-craved idiots. He beguiles the world to call masculinity toxic. And let's just say there is a form of masculinity that's masculinity, masculinity that is sinful, that is wrong. But the idea of being a masculine man is not sinful. And so he labels that as sinful and actually says that that's, that is what the, that's the evils of our society. It, it's that vile, evil patriarchy. So Satan influences our world to think about things like that as sinful, as, as wrong, as something that's hurting us. He treats women as sex objects for the pleasure of men. Satan demonizes the authority of police, calls them pigs. He flips the order of men as elders with women as elders. And then he goes even farther by having a man that thinks he's a woman become an elder in a church. Does that, does that make sense? Well, if he's going to attack God and God's work, he's going to attack God's order of authority. And that's why you see that happening in our society. And church, can you see why this is so important for us? Because if we're going to gather as God's people in holiness, we must honor God's order of authority because that's how we honor God as the authority. And what is that order of authority? I'm going to just go over this and think about this in marriage. What's the order of authority in marriage? Well, marriage, men and women, a man and a woman, is to come together as one flesh. And notice how that lines up. God is one being. We are to come together as one flesh. So notice how this reflects the nature and work of God. And yet there are two persons, male and female, and in an order of authority. There's an order of authority. They're fulfilling distinct gender roles. The husband has a, the role to lead. He's the one that is to protect and to serve and to love his wife. The wife is to follow, to support, to enable him to fulfill God's will for that family. And yet they're equal. They're equal personally, made in the image of God. They're equal spiritually, co heirs of the grace of Christ. In fact, turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to show this to you in another text of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 5. As you go to Ephesians, I want you to imagine that 
ballroom scene again. And if you're against dancing, I'm sorry to offend you in this. But I'm, again, think of this wholesome type of dancing, I guess, the waltz. Think of that room as you have that couple that's out there and they're, they're moving and gliding across the floor. And let's, let's just imagine that that couple are the ones who are the instructors for all those who are around. So there's maybe a room full of 100 people, 50 men, 50 women. And, and, that, and that couple, they slide off the floor, they, they dance off the floor, and then everyone else comes on the dance floor. And the gentleman, each gentleman invites his lady to dance and they go out there, and just imagine how beautiful it would be if, if the music was playing and everyone was in sync, and they were, you know, professionally dancing out there, just uh, 50 couples dancing as if each couple is one. Can you imagine how beautiful would that be, and how would that honor those instructors? And think about that picture, and think about the church. When we gather as a church, it can be beautiful and God-honoring just like that ballroom, when, when we gather and our church is one, but yet we operate under the distinct roles that God has for us, and we treat one another as spiritual equals, and it can honor God when our marriages are one, and we function properly within our marriage, and we value each other, that honors God. And so what does that look like in a marriage? Ephesians chapter 5, I just want to show this to you to kind of demonstrate what Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 11. Link it here to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 18. First, he says, you need to be filled with the Spirit. So none of this can happen if the Holy Spirit isn't controlling you as a wife, as a husband. Then look at verse 22. Here's the role assigned to the wife. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The word submit means to put yourself under. So that's an order of authority. Notice the word own is a boundary word which means she's only to follow her own husband, not other husbands or other men. This is within the jurisdiction of marriage. Notice, as to the Lord is also a boundary phrase. That means that she is to put herself under her husband according to the will of God. You know, if he tries to get her to do something that's outside of God's will, she should not obey him, right? And she does that with the motivation as unto the Lord. And then notice the next verse, the husband's responsibility he is the head, so notice that word there, authority. He's the head, he's the leader of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its savior. And, and he is the lead, the husband is the lead, like Christ led the church. How did Christ lead the church? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. So, so the leadership of Christ is energized and it's motivated by love, love that sacrifices, love that gives up my rights for the good of another person. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus Christ came and became man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and he rose from the dead and went to heaven and he did that for us because he loves us and he loved his father. And so Jesus loved the church. He gave himself up for her. That's, that's what it looks like to lead as a man, as a husband. Heard a story of a bunch of middle school boys that heard this kind of teaching. And so they were all in a group and they were kind of chuckling and laughing and saying, yeah, we, we're boys. We get to be in charge. 
So the pastor heard that and came up to them, and he interjected, and he said, well, boys, this is speaking about marriage. You know, you're not in charge just because you're a guy. And he said, but I, I will teach you what it looks like to serve, it looks, what it looks like to be a leader. That means you're going to serve. And so he said, everyone, I want your attention in here. These boys here are going to take down all the chairs, clean the room, and then they were going to eat. So when we're about to eat, they're going to let you all go first. And the boys said, oh, I thought we were in charge. And he said, exactly. Because if you're going to lead, you're going to serve, and you're going to put the other people in front of yourself. And that's what biblical authority looks like. See, the world, when they think of authority, they think of a dictator. They think of someone who's selfish, who's, who's getting power for themselves. But biblical leadership is saying, I'm going to put other people before myself. I want that person to be the best person they can be. So as a husband, you say, I want that person to be the best mother she can be. I want her to be the best in whatever God has called her to in that marriage. And notice down in verse 31, there you have the Man leaving his father and mother, holding fast to his wife. The two become one. So there's the oneness of marriage. Verse 32, this is a picture of Christ in the church. So marriage is so sacred because actually it's a picture of Christ and his church. And then look at verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So notice these roles here. The wife is to respect it doesn't say if he deserves it. It says that's her role. That's what she's supposed to do. And I would ask this question. Don't you think that's really what your husband wants? Isn't that what men desire? They want to be respected and honored. I think about it like this. If you were to tell a man to, to go pick up a box and move it, he might, he might not. He might say, no, I don't want to do that. But if you were to ask a man if he could pick up that box and move it, Almost every man's going to go try to do it, right? Because he doesn't want to look like he's weak. He wants respect, if you could say it that way. And so a wife can give her husband that gift of honor. God has built within men this God-given desire for that. On the other hand, the husband's role is to do what? He's to love. He's to lead by cherishing her. And isn't it true that God has given women that desire? You want to be loved. You want someone who's cherishing you, someone who wants you, someone who will, will meet your needs, someone who will care for you, who will listen to you. If you ever put Ikea furniture together, it can be very frustrating, can't it? It can also, also be very satisfying, right? If you find two pieces and they fit together, it's like, oh, that, that's so good. But if you have two pieces and they're not going together and you're looking at the directions, you're like, these are supposed to go together. It's very frustrating. If you, if you have a marriage that is not fit together the way that God intends, in other words, if you're not doing it God's way, it's very frustrating. But if your marriage and if you fulfill the role that God's called you to as a husband or as a wife, when you come together, that is a very beautiful and satisfying, God-honoring marriage. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. God has an order of authority. He has an order of authority in the home. He has a, an order of authority in the church. And so look at verse number, 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 3. I want you to understand, so understand the order of authority, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So that's the principle of the order of authority, the headship principle. But then the application 
verse 4. Every man who prays, and praying is speaking to God about people, or prophesies, prophesying is speaking to people about God. So think of it that way. We're going to get more into this probably about seven or eight weeks from now when we go to chapter 14. But So when you're gathering to worship, and there's praying, there's prophesying, so there's women and men doing this. With, so the man has his head covered that dishonors his head. Again, that word head there is kind of has a dual purpose, talking about his physical head, but actually speaking there also about his authority. Who is his authority? It's Christ. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. So what is that head there? That's, again, the authority. So she dishonors her authority, her husband, the one who's over her, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So the really big question here is, what does it mean to cover your head like this? And I'm going to disappoint some of you in here because I'm not going to cover this really until next week because it's it's a lot more in-depth and we don't have much time here, so we can't go into it. But I think you'll enjoy it next week as we go through that. But in short, I will say this, that it's some type of veil or shaw that goes over your head. Evidently, in the Corinthian culture, from we can glean from the text, and we'll look at some other things next week, but just from the text, it was inappropriate for men to put a head covering on in church. And it was appropriate for women to do that. It was a cultural symbol. We have cultural symbols. Now, I don't know if any of you saw this in December, but I've been having some problems with uh, my ring fitting on my hand. So I had this ring I got in Israel, and it's, my hands would swell up, and I would get stuck on there. So I'd have a habit of taking my ring off. And uh, so my wife got me this ring for like, what, $5 on Amazon. So there you go. So valuable. But it, I love it. And, uh, but there was a Sunday where I showed up, and I forgot to wear my ring. Did anybody notice that? And, you know, in our society, if you're not wearing a ring, it means something. And do you think my wife was real fond of the fact that I wasn't wearing my ring? Why, why is that that, that, that that someone might be offended by that? Because it's a symbol that I'm being faithful in marriage. Like, I got a wife. Like, I'm taken already. And the point is, we have symbols in our society. So evidently, in this society, there was a symbol that everybody recognized that if a man wore a head covering in worship, that was wrong. And if a woman didn't wear one, that was wrong. And so that's what he's talking about. Again, I'll talk about more of that next week. But what was, what was the symbol? Well, it was a symbol that that person is under an order of authority. It was a symbol that that one wearing the head covering was under the authority for a woman under the authority of her husband. And again, it doesn't mean that for us today but it was very clear for them, so much so that he's saying it's a shame. It's very shameful for you. Many people who study this text, I think, miss the point of the passage. Because if you hear most people that that teach on this or you read books about this, it's like most of the book is speaking about the head covering. But I don't think this chapter is actually about head coverings. It was just a symbol. That was their application. This text is about verse 3, the principle there. And that is, we are to function under God's order of authority in our distinct role that God has called us to. And, And it matters in a church when we gather together and when we display our heart of submission to God 
and to within the context of whatever role God has placed us. I want you to imagine, again, that ballroom. And I'm probably really offending some people now if they do not like ballroom dancing. But imagine that. But imagine the scene's different. You have that couple that's out there, and they're you know, going back and forth, and it's beautiful, and everyone's oohing and on at it. And, but instead of having people who are skilled around that ballroom floor, it's, it's 100 junior high, middle school boys and girls. There's 50 boys, 50 girls, and the boys, their ties all undone. You know, they're an over, they're over, their coats are oversized. You know, the girls are all dolled up, and they've never had a lesson in their life. They don't know what they're doing. They've never been taught to waltz. And then that couple goes off, and they're the instructors, and they say, go on. And so all these boys and girls go on the floor, floor and a boy takes a girl. And how do you think that would look? Boys stepping on their toes, girls saying, you're, not, you're doing it wrong. I mean, it would just, they're crashing into each other. It wouldn't look very beautiful, would it? Why is that? Well, they're not skilled, number one. Also, they're 13 years old. But the other part of that is they're not following an order of authority, right? There's a sense of there's not someone leading that, that couple. There's not someone following. Part of it's because they don't have the skills, but part of it might be that they actually have not been taught that that's the way they are to do it. And I think that's what a lot of churches might look like, if you take that analogy kind of to the next step. We gather to worship, and many churches gather, and they just don't think it matters, God's order of authority. You might say, well, Pastor Ben, this sounds very chauvinistic. Do you even believe in equality? Yes, I do. And so does God. And so I just want to end by looking at verse, thir- uh, verse 11. Go down and look at verse 11. Verse 11 speaks about the value that each person have, and we are to value each person as equals personally and spiritually. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. In other words, he is the one in charge. Men and women, according to this verse, are equal in dignity as humans and are equal spiritually in God's kingdom. God doesn't love men more than he loves women or women more than men. God doesn't value men more than women or women more than men. The the pastor is not more valuable than the congregant. The wife is not more valuable than... They're all equally valuable. Verse 11 says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of the woman. There's an interdependence. We need each other. Like you can't have Lighthouse Bible Church without men and women. You can't have a marriage that honors God and that's enjoyable without a man and a woman fulfilling the role God has for them equally, equally valued before the Lord. But a man might argue, well, a woman came from man's side, so we're more important. And a woman might retort, retort, nope, man was born of woman, so woman is more important. And that's what he's kind of saying in verse 12. He's saying, actually, you're both right. Both of you are important. And that's why you need one another. So in the church, in the home, men and women must be treated as equals in dignity and worth before the Lord. Yes, you might have a different role but there should be a value there. Let's end just thinking about how do we apply this to our life. 
Just take the first point that we are to be united as a church under the authority of God's word. When you hear things like this in God's word, especially when it grates against what you think is right or maybe what you've heard your whole life, do you believe God's word or do you believe culture's word? And, and that's really the kind of the question that comes to these kind of difficult texts, especially when it kind of touches areas of our life. We must submit to God's word. Our worship must submit to God's word. And how about the second point? We are to function under God's order of authority and your distinct role. So let me speak to husbands and wives. Let me speak to maybe someone who hopes someday to be married. Think about what it means to be a husband, what it means to be a wife. Let me ask, husbands, do you lead your home by serving and loving? Do you lead to make your wife a better person, to be more like Jesus Christ? When was the last time you said to your wife, may I pray for you? How may I pray for you? When's the last time you said, I love you, and, and how can I show love to you today? In what way can I put you before myself this week? Ladies, do you follow your husband and respect him? Even sometimes when he says or does things that doesn't deserve respect. And men, we've all been there, right? But do you thank him for working hard to provide? Are, are your words there to build him up or are they there to tear him down? You might be in here and you think, well, I'm not married. Maybe you're, you're a widow or a widower or maybe you uh, are divorced and you think, I just don't have anyone like that in my life. You know, you have experience in your life and you could help some of us who are still in the midst of it, or some who are just beginning. We have some people in here who are engaged, some people here in here who just got married, some people in here who want to get married, and you can come alongside, prepare those who want to get married, equip those who are married, and you can apply some of the less life lessons to their lives. And also, I think we can all pray for each other, right? I mean, the, the, the foundation for a culture is family and family in a church. And so let's pray for our families, pray for our marriages. And then last of all, I think it's always important to remember as a church that we are to treat one another as spiritual equals. We're not to denigrate women. We're not to disparage men. We're to value them. God values them. There's not people in the church who are less valuable than others. If you're single, you're not less valuable than if you're married. If you're a, a man, you're not more valuable than if you're a woman. We shouldn't speak like that. We need to be careful about how we joke about stuff like that. It's not true. We all, as Lighthouse Bible Church, young, old, married, single, whatever it is, we are all spiritual equals. Every one of us will stand before Christ, and no one's going to say, oh, I had this in life, so I'm, I'm more important, Lord. He'll say, nope, all joint heirs in the grace according to the grace of Christ. And so we must treat each other in that way. And so as we gather as Christ's church, we must ask, are we reflecting God who is one, yet three persons functioning in their roles and equally value, valuable? Are we worshiping Christ? Are we worshiping God in Christ and the Spirit in the way that honors him? Let's pray.